This morning we're back into Galatians, and this is going to be the last uh, message in this block of Galatians. We've done almost half the book now, and we're going to take a break after today. We'll come back and, and do the second half later in the year. But next week we're going to start a series on the Lord's Prayer uh, in an effort to uh, really, really shine the spotlight, I guess, on prayer in the life of our church. I felt that that's something God's leading us to prioritize and emphasize, building a culture of prayer. So we're going to work our way through the prayer that Jesus prayed and gave his disciples to pray in Matthew, phrase by phrase, over five weeks, and just looking at how it teaches us to pray as a community, as people, what it tells us about God. So that'll be something totally different from Galatians. So we'll finish off Galatians this morning, and we have, I mean, this is like the heaviest passage possibly in Galatians, if not in all of Paul's letters, so I hope you've had your coffee or your Red Bull, or your V, or whatever you need to, to rev yourself up. Let's, um, let's read it. Galatians 3, 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Clear enough? Happy with that? Pretty straightforward, isn't it? <laughs> oh, man. Woo. Okay, so this is one of the hardest passages right here in all of the New Testament, I would say, and the, the amount of books and commentaries that have been written on this passage is just extraordinary. Uh, but there is, you'll be pleased to know, underneath all of the stuff about seed and seeds and 430 years and the mediator and the angels and all of this very confusing language, there is underneath it all a fairly simple idea, a fairly simple metaphor or an image, actually, that starts to make sense of the whole thing. And if you can grasp the metaphor that Paul's working with, a lot of other things start to fall into place. And it's the idea of a will. A will. Now, I brought along this morning my will. It's quite thin. <laughs> Not much in it. Um, you might want to come and see if your name's in here afterwards, after the service. But um, this, is, this is really, so, so this is my will, a copy of my will, and it's a description, you know, as every will is, of if I pass away, various things go to various people, mainly my wife, and uh, this will go here, and I promise this to her. Really, what, what a will is, it's a legal promise, Right? So it's, it's, le it's a legally binding promise that when I pass away, certain things will be given to Anna. Now, Paul is taking this idea of a legal promise, of a will, last will and testament, and he's saying, this is a bit like 
this agreement or this promise that God made to Abraham. Abraham's cropped up a lot in Galatians. He's going to continue to be a really prominent figure. Um, This covenant, Paul says, with Abraham was a bit like a will. Now, the Bible has various covenants in it. You might be familiar with that term. We, we often think about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, right? Or the, or the Old Testament and the New Testament. Your, your whole Bible is structured that way. There's a blank page in the middle to separate the two, right? Old Covenant, New Covenant. But here's the thing. Over the top of these two covenants, the Old Covenant with Moses, the New Covenant with Jesus, over the top of them, there is this one massive covenant with Abraham. We often don't think about it, but it actually hangs over the top of both of these covenants and makes sense of both of them. It is the unifying principle of the whole biblical story. It pulls it all together, the Abrahamic covenant. And Paul says this covenant God made with Abraham was a little bit like a will in the sense that it was a promise God made to Abraham, didn't really require much of him, didn't really put many obligations on Abraham like like a normal contract would. This was all about God saying, Abraham, this is what I'm promising you. Abraham, this is what's going to happen. Here's what's coming your way. All of this stuff is going to be yours. This is the agreement God made with him. Way back in Genesis 12, thousands of years before Jesus, thousands of years before Paul, God shows up to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make from you an incredible huge nation, a huge family, a huge people group. Your offspring are going to be this massive people of blessing. I will bless whoever blesses them. I will curse whoever curses them. I will give them this land. He promised them physical land in Canaan. And he says, your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars. You you couldn't even count them like you can't count the, the sand on the seashore. You are just going to be the head of this huge, huge family. And this family that's going to come from you, Abraham, is going to be my family for my own possession. I'm going to enter into relationship with them, bless them, pour out reward upon them. That's the deal. That's what God promises to Abraham. That, it's, it's, like, it's done like a will. It's this legally binding thing. God places himself under obligation to fulfill these promises to bless Abraham and create a huge family from him. Now then Paul kind of throws this little spanner in the works in this text. That idea in itself is simple enough, okay, that God's promised these these things to Abraham. But then Paul says this thing in verse 16 about the seed and the seeds, which is where it starts to get complicated. He says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, but to seed. Paul seems to be making this thing about the fact that God said singular rather than plural. The word seed is the word sperma. And we don't need to go into the origins of that word here, all right? That's for another time. That's for biology at school. But sperma is the word. So you understand literally what's going on here. And, but it's usually translated children, offspring, descendants, family. It sounds a bit nitpicky, doesn't it, that Paul's kind of making this big deal about God didn't say seeds or, or descendants. He said Descendant. In other words, he promised Abraham, this promise is for you and your descendant, or you and your offspring singular. What's all this about? What, what, is Paul just kind of clutching at straws here? What's happening? It depends a little bit on how you translate this word sperma. And I would argue the best way to translate it 
is as family. In fact, if, you, if you've got a pen or a pencil, um, you might want to write in the word family, if you don't mind desecrating your Bible. Family, just beside the word seed or the word offspring there. I think that's a good translation of the word seed. And it starts to make sense of what's going on here. If you read this verse with the word family in there, where it says seed, you start to get an idea of what's going on. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his family. Scripture does not say, and to families, plural, but to your family, meaning one person who is Christ. It starts to become a bit clearer, doesn't it? Still a lot of questions. But you start to get this idea that what God's promising to Abraham is that he will create from Abraham a single family. Not two families, not five families, not, not a whole bunch of families, one family. What God's saying is, Abraham, you're going to be the head of a worldwide, multinational, multi-generational family, singular, one family. Not a whole bunch of them, just one. That's important for what Paul's arguing because he's dealing with a bunch of people in Galatia who are basically creating two families within God's people. By requiring Gentiles to observe the law, they're basically dividing down the middle between Jews and Gentiles, two different families. And Paul says, you know, that's never what God promised to Abraham. God's promise was always to create one massive family. Everybody in, here it is. And then Paul goes the next step and he connects this family to Jesus. This is why he said, that the promise is made to your family who actually means one person, ultimately, who is Christ. You've got to understand here that Paul is talking about Jesus, talking about Christ in both an individual sense and in a corporate sense. He's talking about Jesus, the individual, but he's also talking about Jesus as, as the head of a family, all those who are in Jesus' family. And the overall point is this, without getting bogged down in the detail, when God spoke these promises to Abraham, when he promised Abraham that he would be the head of a massive family, ultimately, God had his eye on Jesus as the final fulfillment of those promises. This is so important. Even though those promises were, in a sense, fulfilled partially with Israel. Israel was a family that came from Abraham. They were an ethnic family descended from Abraham. They had a unique relationship with God. Those promises were partially fulfilled there. But God all along was looking even beyond that. He was looking to Jesus, who would be the one that he really was talking about when he promised Abraham that he was going to create this people of blessing. And so by the time you get to Jesus, when Jesus lives, when Jesus dies, when Jesus was resurrected, he is doing these things as the last true descendant of Abraham. He's doing these things as the true seed of Abraham. He is the one true member of Abraham's family. He's the one who's fulfilling the promises that God made all the way back then to Abraham. He's the descendant. He is the seed of Abraham. It's Jesus. It was always all about Jesus. We just didn't know that way back then. That wasn't revealed way back then. It's only revealed in Jesus and in those who reflected on him later, like Paul, that we find Jesus all along was that seed that God had talked about, that Abraham, to your offspring, I'm going to give blessing. You know, that, that offspring ultimately was Jesus. 
He was the one. And then you start to broaden it out because what you see is it's not just that Jesus, the individual man, was the heir of these promises. It's not just that Jesus, the individual, received this inheritance that God promised Abraham. Jesus now becomes the new center of Abraham's family. Same family, same covenant. Now the center of the family is Jesus and no longer Abraham. Abraham's still the father way back here, but Jesus is now the new head of the family. And all those who come into the family, who have faith in Jesus, who connect their lives to him, who bow the knee as we sing and confess Jesus as Lord, all of those people who come into the family, we now receive the inheritance through him. We now get in on the promises through Jesus. I can tell you're excited about this. Now, so think about it this way. Come back to the idea of a will for a minute. Now imagine, fast forward my life, okay, quite a few years. Let's assume that um, Joshua, my son, has grown up and he's gotten married. And let's assume that I've revised my will now, okay? And I've promised, as well as promising some things to Anna, I've also promised some things to Joshua. Now he's an adult and, and, and certain part of my inheritance is going to go to him. Now when I pass away, that sum of money, that whatever it is, estate, whatever, will be automatically given to Joshua. But let's imagine that he's married. His wife is also going to share in that inheritance. Even though it's given to Joshua, it goes into his bank account, the very fact that he's married means that as a couple, really, effectively, they receive that inheritance together. It's given to both of them. Unless Joshua decides to skive off and not give any to his wife. But you see the idea? The, the fact that he would be married means they're going to receive it together. His wife, in a sense, will get in on that inheritance through him. Because I've given it to him, she's married to him, she's in on it. Fantastic. This is a little bit like how it works with us and Jesus. Jesus is the one who God promised this great inheritance to through Abraham. Jesus is the one who receives reward from God, who has this unique relationship with God, full of the Spirit, the one who is, who is Abraham's true descendant and therefore fulfills all the promises. But you and I, those of us who follow Jesus, as we are joined to him, it's, it's a bit like a marriage. And now we get in on these promises because we are joined to Jesus. He's the, one, he's the heir, really. But the Bible says we are co-heirs with him. We're in on it. We get in, not, not in, a, in a selfish way, but we, we genuinely, the blessings flow to us because they first flowed to Jesus. We're in. We have these incredible rewards. And now what's happening is that this huge family that God promised to Abraham is now the family of faith that's reconfigured around Jesus. All those who have faith are part of this worldwide people of blessing. No longer the, the, the ethnic national nation of Israel in the Old Testament, but now the church of the New Testament. Those who have faith in Jesus are the people that God has this unique relationship with. What that means is that the body of Christ, the church today, is the living, breathing family of Abraham. We're carrying it on. We're carrying the story forward. There's a lot of people, you know, there's a growing number of people in New Zealand who are choosing to express their faith outside of the church who are identifying with that phrase, I love Jesus but not the church, who are sick of institutional Christianity, who are sick of the church, feel like the church has burned them, wronged them, whatever. 
And they're just out here as individuals. And the reasoning is, well, you know, at the end of the day, it's just about my relationship with God and I can express that outside of community. But when you start to get a, a, a glimpse, a grasp of this massive covenant that God made with Abraham, fulfilled in Jesus, and now extended out to the creation of a family of faith, you start to realize that this family, this church, this body, this people is absolutely integral to God's purposes in history. God doesn't save individuals only. He saves a people. His purpose is to create a people, a universal worldwide church family. That's why the church is so much more than a club, so much more than a, just, a, just a gathering of people, even, even more than just a collection of saved individuals. We are the worldwide global family of Abraham moving down through history, carrying forward the promises, seeing the inheritance coming to us because of Jesus. You know what this should do is give you a really high view of the church. It's what we call a high ecclesiology, a high view of the church, not a gathering, not a little social club. We are the church, family of God, and we are a local manifestation of it here at shore. This should make us desire more community with one another as members of God's worldwide church. It should make us long to express our faith within the context of this family, not as individuals. It should lead us to work for unity in the church, shouldn't it? Because God created one family, not many families, one family. And wherever we see that family divided, we need to address it. Wherever you have an issue with a brother or sister within the family, you've got to see that as part of, you know, this is a fracturing of the family of Abraham. God, God desired this to be a unified family. I need to address my issue with this person for that reason. Not just for me, not just for them, but because there's a, there's a family at stake here. Should lead us to work for unity at every single level. And the flip side of this is that it also helps us to see the place of Israel in the biblical story. I think some Christians today are in danger of holding on to the idea that God still has two families. The church and Israel. As if he's got a separate plan for both of them. But I think you read Galatians 3, you get the strong sense, you know, God has got one family. He's always had one family. Israel and the old, and then Israel becomes reconfigured around Jesus. So the church now is the new Israel. That's why Paul writes, to the Israel of God, speaking of the church. Now that's not to disparage Israel at all. They had a hugely significant role in the story. They carried the promises forward. But now it is the global, all nations family of God that is the one family through which God's promises are being worked out. There is no separate little plan over here, little scheme. God's going to do this thing here for Israel and he's going to do this thing here for the church. When you start thinking like that, I think you're back in the pattern that Paul's trying to counter. Back in the pattern of why have you got two families? God's only got one. This should affect the way we think about Israel, not disparaging Israel at all, but realizing that Israel today is as significant as every other nation. New Zealand, Japan, Uganda, Israel, all nations are important to God. Jewish people find their way into the kingdom just the same way that you and I do, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how they become part of the worldwide family of God. That's how they become part of the family of Abraham. It's one family. Be careful of drifting back into this dualism where we think that God's got a separate track for national ethnic Israel. 
So we're tracking so far. We've got this one massive family, the Jesus family, if you like. And we are the heirs. We've got the inheritance now that God promised to Abraham. Here's the other thing that Paul deals with briefly. In view of all this, one of the questions that comes up is, what then is the purpose of the law? And and if that's the question in your mind, then you've been tracking with Paul because that's exactly the question that he answers in verse 19. He says, well, what what then? Why bother with the law? If, If God promised this thing to Abraham, it was fulfilled in Jesus, now it's been worked out through the church, what... Who cares about the law? Why did that even come? And that's a question a lot of Christians have today, trying to figure out what's, why, how do we relate to the law? Well, Paul's answer is pretty succinct. In verse 19, what, what then was the purpose of the law? It was added, just three words really, because of transgressions. Until the seed, that's Jesus, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was added because of transgressions. See, here's the thing. Even though Israel were the people that God elected, in the Old Testament, to carry forward the promises. Even though they contained this, this hope within themselves, they were also part of the problem. Because they, like all humanity, were infected with sin. They were less than human in that sense of falling short of the image of God, falling short of God's glory. Israel themselves were a broken and a fallen people, and you only need to read the Old Testament to realize that, all the ups and downs and, and, and dead ends that they go, go down. And therefore, God needed a way, while the promises were being carried forward in Israel, of containing and quarantining this this sinful nation to keep them on some sort of track so that eventually the purpose for Israel could be fulfilled in Jesus. Tom Wright gives a great analogy of this. If you've read that little Galatians uh, commentary that some of you had, you'll, you'll have read that there. He says, it's a bit like a group of doctors that come into a village that's um, suffering from a, from a particular epidemic. And they've got the antidote for the, uh, for the sick villagers. But in the process of treating these villagers, the doctors themselves become infected with this disease. And so the doctors themselves have to be quarantined until the very antidote they've brought can be applied to them as well. That's not a bad way of thinking about it. That Israel, in a sense, they've got the antidote. They're carrying the promises of God, but they themselves are infected by the very virus that God is planning to remedy through them. And so they have to be quarantined for a period of time. The law is like this safety rail that keeps Israel uh, boxed in, in a sense, until God's purposes can finally be fulfilled. And even then, Israel manages to come significantly off track to the point of incurring God's judgment in the form of exile. But the law plays this quarantining containing function in that interim period of time. But Paul says, you know, this doesn't ultimately change the fact that God's promises were spoken to Abraham and they were fulfilled in Jesus. The fulfillment of these promises does not depend on the law. This is so important for what he's saying in Galatia. The law doesn't become a condition of earning these promises. The law doesn't become a condition. for God just promised it. He promised this to Abraham long before the law came, 430 years before the law. The promises were made to Abraham. They weren't affected by the law. The law was this other thing. It had this other function, but the promises were established by God and they're fulfilled in faith apart from the law. The law, in a sense, was like a little parenthesis in the plan for a particular time, for a particular purpose. But the promises are fulfilled by faith. 
And this does affect the way that you and I now read our Old Testament. Because the question becomes, well, what's the, like? should we just throw out the first half, two-thirds of the Bible? Because the law was just this interim thing. Really, it's about Abraham straight line to Jesus. What's the deal with the law? It was part of the intervening story, but it seems like it's no longer got any validity. And I would say this. When you read the Old Testament, when you read any of the law, the prophets, the wisdom writings in the Old Testament, we have to, we have to read these now through the lens of Jesus. We have to read them Christologically. That is, through the lens of the cross, through the lens of the empty tomb. The Old Testament law does not have any authority for us in and of itself. It was for Israel and it was for a particular time. But it gains authority for us as we apply it through Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, take the, uh, take the Ten Commandments. I mean, they're, they're great moral principles. They're important ethical instructions. But even these ten pillars of the law have no meaning for us now apart from Jesus. Otherwise, we might as well simply conform to Judaism and hold this up as the final authority. As Christians, as New Testament believers, we have to say this takes on meaning in view of Jesus. So if you're going to look at the Ten Commandments, they are absolutely part of God's Word, but they're part of God's Word in view of the cross and the empty tomb. And we read them in that light. So when we read, is it the fourth commandment about the Sabbath? Fourth? When we read the commandment about observing the Sabbath, we have to see that in light of how the story actually moves forward and the fact that Jesus ultimately is our Sabbath. He's ultimately our rest. He's ultimately the one in whom we find our true rest. Not a bad idea to observe a 24-hour period of time once a week for rest and worship, but don't just do that for the sake of doing that. See it in view of Jesus. When, when God commands us to have no other, not make any graven images. Well, you know, it, it's one thing just to say, okay, so what does that mean? I shouldn't have any paintings of Jesus on my wall. What is it? You know. But what about seeing that in view of the fact that Jesus is the image of God? Don't make any graven images. Why not? Because God has created us as his image bearers and ultimately Jesus as the truly human one who bears the image of God completely. It all starts to make sense in view of Jesus. Now, of course, don't commit murder. Pretty straightforward. Okay, No one's throwing that out. No one's saying that's not a good rule. Yes, it is. But you've got to just see all of this now in light of Jesus. Whenever you read anything in the Old Testament, ask yourself, what does this mean in view of Jesus? I think that's how Paul would have us treat the law now. Because on the one hand, we have to say it was for a time, it was for a purpose, and it no longer has an independent authority for Christians. On the other hand, we see it as part of the broad canon of Scripture that the Spirit has inspired the whole deal. It's just we must read it now through the lens of Christ. And so wrapping all up, this idea of the Abrahamic covenant, it gives us, I think, a fresh view of Jesus, the one who is the true descendant, the true heir of Abraham, who's received all of the inheritance. It gives us a fresh view of the church, as the worldwide family of God, the family of Abraham, still living in the world today, family of Abraham, but no longer defined by biological descendants, but now by those who connect their lives to Jesus. It gives us, on the flip side of that, a fresh view of Israel, the important part they had in the story, but the way now in which Jewish people find their identity in Christ, 
the same way as everyone else. That there's no longer a separate plan for Israel aside from that which God has for the church. And it gives us a fresh view of the Old Testament, the scriptures through which we can hear the Spirit speak, but the Spirit of Christ. So we read them through that lens. You know, a few weeks ago, I don't know how, let me say this, I don't know how many of you have heard the name Alan William Shaw. It doesn't mean much to anybody. It didn't mean much to the uh, principal and the students at O'Reilly College, but suddenly they found out that this guy, Alan William Shaw, had given $2.9 million to O'Reilly College in his will. And upon his passing away, this money was suddenly bequeathed to students for tertiary scholarships. He'd never gone to the school. Nobody knew him. Principal had never heard of him. In fact, they couldn't even find a photo of him to put in the school newsletter. He was just this guy. He, he lived in Oriwa, loved to walk along Oriwa Beach, and in his will, $2.9 million. Just imagine the gratitude you'd feel if you were the principal of that school, a guy you'd never met, never done anything for. He passes away and your school has landed with this huge gift. Maybe that's a fraction of the gratitude we should feel for the inheritance that we've received through Jesus. The one whom we've never done anything for in the sense that we have nothing to bring. We've got nothing to our credit. But the one upon whose death a whole lot of promises were released to us. Just as with any will it takes the passing away of the person for the promises to be put into action, so it was with God. And he knew that when he promised this to Abraham, that ultimately it would be the death of God in the form of the crucified man from Nazareth that enabled this inheritance to flow to us. And we get in on it through Jesus. That should fill us with thanks. That should fill us with praise. And it should fill us with immense gratitude to be part of the worldwide family of God, the church, that's carrying these promises forward. Father, we thank you. I thank you for that, Lord Jesus, that, Lord, not in any prideful way, but we're just grateful to be part of this community that just has an incredible place in history not just a little local church in Albany, but the worldwide, part of the worldwide family of Abraham, receiving these blessings, co-heirs with Christ, getting in on all these promises through him. Father, fill us with that big picture, that big view of the overall covenant you made with Abraham that makes sense of so many little things. Teach us, Father, to read our scriptures well in view of that covenant, especially the Old Testament. Let us hear you speaking through it, but through Christ and through the Spirit. Father, as we have this framework in our heads, Lord, you know this morning's been heavy and quite teachy, but I pray that you'd seal on our hearts this, this idea that we are part of the community of faith. Father, fill our hearts with gratitude for that. We're so grateful. We thank you, and we thank you that it's all because of Jesus that that is possible. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.